Well, hello and welcome to the Great Southland Revival podcast series. I'm here with Warwick Marsh and we're in our second episode. Um, in terms of a bit of a background to this series, it's very new, very fresh and we're essentially we're writing a book. Warwick and I are writing a book called Great Southland Revival. We're hoping to release it later this year in September and in the process of writing this book, we're doing research and we're speaking to people who've um, written on revival, who are authorities on revival, particularly in Australian history. And so um, in this episode, I'm actually going to be interviewing my co-author Warwick and uh, I'm going to ask him in terms of his own experience of revival and his uh, understanding and knowledge about revival. Um, so first of all, I want to say welcome Warwick. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, it's a great honor to be with you, Kurt. Great honor indeed. Excellent. More ways than one. Mm. I thought actually it might be great for um, for us to begin with the question, how did this idea for the book come, come about? You and I have co-authored a couple of books together. And so when I say we're writing a book, I know that that's a claim um, I've previously made and is very easy to make. I'm sure lots of people have, have said, I'm going to write a book and then obviously it never happens. But uh, we've got a little bit of history in this. We've got a couple of books we've co-authored together, all of which began with an announcement that we're writing this book and it actually did come about. So I'm confident that's um, what will happen in this case, God willing. But this particular book, Great Southland Revival, how did this uh, the idea for this book come about? Yeah, well, it just so happens I've got one of your books here, Kurt, and we might start off with that. So um, for those who, in some ways, this book has been an inspiration uh, both to me and obviously to Kurt. Kurt's written this book called Cross and Culture, which he started, I think, uh, probably been working on for three or four years, four or five years, and it came to pass. And um, while he was writing this book, we met up together and he started working with the Canberra Declaration. And we then authored uh, this book here, which is uh, The Blessing of Almighty God. It's the stories of several people who started the, the Canberra Declaration. And then we went to uh, this book here which is the power of the gospel there's nothing greater than the gospel of the lord jesus christ and then we went most recently uh most recent book which we co-authored together is the power of prayer and um i'm glad kurt that we did the power of the gospel first and the power of the prayer first because i do believe i better get that right uh, i do believe that these are the foundation stones and the foundation stones have to be Jesus and the foundation stones have to be prayer and the gospel because God's great plan is summed up in that famous verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. And this is the foundation, I believe, uh, for our Christian faith. Um, you know, God could take us to heaven right now Kurt, couldn't he? Absolutely. But, but there's a job to be done. People don't know Jesus. People are going to a lost eternity. They're going to hell. And they haven't heard the good news of Jesus Christ, that God so loved the world. Mm. That is the essence of the gospel. So it's in that context that we um, we planned to actually write a book about prayer. I talked to you, Kurt, last year, and we, we said we, we both felt to do a book about prayer and fasting. You said yes, correct? That's right. Oh, and we, mean, we planned it and sorry keep we going. were working towards another book true we were correct we were we had yeah. a different plan and god's kind of yeah changed our course throughout the course he of this our year plans, you know? mm, he did so 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 what happened is um you know kurt and i were planning to write a book about prayer and fasting 
and release it in September just before we do it. We have a month of prayer and fasting, which is a sort of a seems like a logical thing to do and something that is, you know, it's needful to do. There's not a lot of stuff about prayer and fasting, fresh stuff. So we were wanting to do that. And about the second week of January, the first part of the second week of January this year, 2022, I I don't know how it happened, actually, but I, I just felt God wanted us to book, write a book about revival. And I was sort of quite puzzled initially because it just sort of came out of left field for, mm. for, for me as I was in prayer and as I was meditating. And so I rang you up and what did you say, Kurt? Uh, straight away, I said, yes, uh, it just rang true, you know, and um, I've been reading a couple of books, one of which uh, is Stuart Piggins is the Fountain of Public Prosperity. And I think just before you called Warwick, I was reading a chapter about some of the um, amazing revival events in Australian history that I'd never read about before. And so when you suggested this book, I thought, absolutely, we have to read uh, write it. I, it just seemed like absolutely it was it was an idea from heaven and um, there was no hesitation on my part. So then I had to talk to my wife and my wife uh, at first, she said, she said no. And she said no, because she said, unless we see an end to abortion in Australia, that between 80 to 100,000 little babies are killed each year mm. that we know of um, are killed uh, before they have a chance to breathe. Um, and my wife and I are particularly passionate. Of course, the Canberra Declaration is about life, marriage, faith, family and freedom. Mm. These basic Christian uh, tenets that hold our society together and in fact our faith the christian faith holds this society together because our, our whole country was built on the notion that as a nation we rely on the blessings of almighty god hmm. so uh, allison said no and it has to you have to have a revival that gets rid of abortion i couldn't but help agree with it kurt hmm. I, I think she's got a point so i I said, well, you think about it and pray about it for a few weeks. And I got back to you and I said, look, my wife's, uh, you know, not sure. And I want her to be sure. And I want her to pray about it and think about it. And so after a few weeks, I also spoke to Kim Farnack. Kim, Kim said yes. Um, and I spoke to Jean and Daphne as well. Mm. So how long story short, here we are. My wife said, yes, you can write the book. <laughs> and <laughs> we are writing the book. I always... I always felt funny, though. I, 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 it was a book about revival, but I knew that sounded a little bit sort of, I just wasn't quite happy with it, uh, but I didn't have a better idea. I knew it had to be very Australian-centric. At least half of the book had to be sort of based in Australia mm. um, and looking at then at revival history. But then you started to pray about it. I gave you the sort of my thoughts, and I said, what, what do you think, Kurt? How do you feel? And what happened? How did you, how did you come to the current title? Well... I definitely wanted a, a title that reflected the fact that, yes, Australia was really in focus. Uh, we're based in Australia. You and I serve um, in an organisation um, that's called the Canberra Declaration, you know, which was launched on the grounds of Parliament House in Canberra. And much of what we do, including with um, our Christian news site, The Daily Declaration, is centred on Australia. And so we need to make that a big focus in our book and obviously then in the title. Um, but to, to use the word Australia is perhaps a little bit too narrow because um, Australia is set in the South Pacific where uh, we've had a lot of interaction with other islands nearby, other nations nearby. And uh, one of the phrases that is often used, I think, in, in certainly in charismatic circles, but also, you know, among Christians in general who are interested in revival is this, um, this title that 
De Quiros gave to Australia and the, the islands surrounding us back in, was it the 1500s? Uh, maybe it was earlier than that. You are a bit more familiar it with that 1606, history. 1606. 1606, yeah. Um, and he, he called Australia and the surrounding region the Great Southland or Great Southlands of the Holy Spirit, depending on how you render it. And that is certainly a phrase that has been spoken over and prophesied over Australia many, many times. And I just felt that that, um, that needed to be somewhere in the title. And so t- um, calling it Great Southland Revival, that's where we're, that's where we're going to go with the title. And I think it, um, as you've described it, Warwick, it's a, it's a great hook on which to hang many ideas because, yes, we've got sort of Australia there, um, at the centre, but we can also therefore refer to other islands, other nations nearby. And in calling it Great Southland Revival, um, we're both referring to things that have happened in the past, but we're also therefore um, writing with hope for the future. Um, we're hoping for and writing about and encouraging a Great Southland Revival that's yet to come. So it's a great title, I think, to on which to hook many ideas, as you've said. Yeah. Yeah, no, look, I, when you told me about it, uh, I felt good about it, but I sort of had to sort of think about it for, and pray about it for 24, 48 hours. And, and the more I prayed about it, the more I looked at it, I thought, this is really great. I think it's, I think you've nailed it. And our journey is to, is to look at Australia uh, and look at the influence from England, from the reformers, from the John Wesley, uh, Zinzendorf, um, you know, George Whitfield, even Jonathan Edwards in America had some sort of indirect influence here in Australia, certainly prophesied a fantastic sort of uh, uh, sort of almost like a prophetic utterance, if you like, about this uh, great undiscovered South land that God would use. Um, so, yes, he had, a, he had a hand in in the play. And certainly, you know, um, Luther, Calvin, uh, Wy- Wycliffe, um, John Knox, uh, uh, Hussites, um, the who was John Huss, who was who was un, uh, sadly burned at the stake, I think, in the 1300s, 1400s, and so then you go right back through the uh, early church fathers and the Catholic saints, and you go right back to Jerusalem, where Jesus said, "Wait until in Jerusalem for the dunamis." Now he'd been he'd shown them how to uh, heal the sick, he'd shown them how to share the good news, he'd shown them all these things over three years, but even he said, "You must wait for the Holy Spirit." And the Holy Spirit was then outpoured. So, in a sense, that's where our book starts in the book of Acts, in the words of Jesus, and the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus. And the, I might add this too, that, that, that that's something that's not always talked about, and hopefully we can talk a bit about it in the book. our book that we're writing, is that he promised to baptise with the Spirit and with fire. Mm. And this seems to be something... Um, amazing, um, amazing about fire, and then the, the spirit of God is is many sort of types for the spirit of God. You know, uh, breath of breath of wind. There was a great rushing wind, and there seemed to be like tongues of fire that were on top of their heads, mm. um, and um, water is used to uh, illustrate the spirit. Oil, but fire is something that's used. And we just before this interview started. Um, Kurt and I were talking about this book and Firestorm of the Lord, which by Stuart Piggins, which is, I'm just starting to read this. And uh, Kurt has just finished the um, book on the uh, foundation of public prosperity, which refers to revival, the revival history of Australia. Mm. And you can't see it slightly off camera here. There's a, there's a stack of books here. 
um, 22 books to be precise by Robert Evans. And uh, Robert Evans is a, a former um, United Church Methodist minister, and he's written probably uh, with Stuart, those two guys would be the most, um, the greatest historical analysis of revival in Australia, bar none. And many others have done a great job. Barry Chant, Ian Mallins, Jeff War, incredible work. But certainly these two guys, uh, Robert Evans and Stuart Piggins, Professor Stuart Piggins have just done an incredible job documenting the story of revival. Um, so what much of what question? we're going to be doing uh, this year, Warwick, much of what we're going to be doing is, first of all, looking at what has been written already. And um, we were just saying before the call began that, you know, we're aware of the fact that what we're going to contribute is probably just a drop in the ocean. Uh, but hopefully it's a, a significant and a helpful and a constructive drop in the ocean. And we also acknowledge very much that we're going to be building on the shoulders of giants. And that's part of why we're recording this series, because it's going to be our conversations, our interactions with guys who've written and studied and um, yeah, really looked at this topic far more than we have. So, yep, question two. I wanted to come back. Um, it actually relates to something you just mentioned about um, your wife, Alison, when her reaction when you um, described to her this project. And, you know, she was really concerned rightly about what revival is, how it's defined, because not not just anything is revival. If it doesn't have tangible results in culture, it, it can hardly be described as revival. But maybe I preempted an answer there, Warwick. But my next question is, how would you define the word revival, biblically speaking? Yeah, uh, just before I just wanted to go, go uh, you know, just elucidate on what you've just said about how we can write the book. So. Kurt and I are going to talk to a lot of people that are smarter than us because this is just, you know, a drop. <laughs> like you compared with sort of 22 books by Robert Evans and the and the incredible sort of uh, historicity and academic input by uh, Stuart Piggins and, you know, people like, um, you know, Dr. Barry Chant, who's also virtually a professor of, of, of Christian history in Australia. Um, people like, uh, you know, uh, Ian Mallins, who's a missionary and a, a revivalist and a, a great historian in his own right. Uh, so many others. How, how can what what can we do? Well, we're going to try to distill all these different, um, you know, voices and if you like, pick the best out of that. And it's a book. Um, Barry Chance said to me, is this a book? Uh, are you going to use, you know, quote, just first uh, hand historical re resources? I said, well, yes, we will as much as we can, but essentially we'll be quoting you and many others like you because you've done the hard work and we want to honour that work by those great men and women. And um, I mean, there's some incredible stories about women of uh, faith uh, in the 1800s. There's a story here about, um, you know, that I've got here on my left hand side um, about a woman of God who was an evangelist in the 1800s having revivals right across Australia. So this is this story is actually about men and women. Very exciting story. And yes, we will be trying to draw from the best and put that story together. And even, you know, when it comes to, you've just asked me about what do I think the word revival means? Well, some of these have got some great insights into that too. Look, it's a phenomenal question and it's a very hard question. Um, what we've got to do, I believe, is go to the scriptures first and be honest, right? Um, the word revival per se um, does not appear in the scriptures, if you want to be really honest. This description revival does, and the word revive us again is used many times, 
Um, Psalm 85 verse 6 says, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Psalm 80 verse 19 says, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So the idea of restoration, the idea of being revived is there in the scriptures. Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And I might say this, um, Kurt, what I see, because I've been reading revival stories and revival books for, you know, almost 50 years now, I just love the subject of revival. Um, But what I see is that God meets the lowly and meets the humble. And often it's sometimes the only the humble that are revived. Uh, in the in the 1904 revival that swept Wales and then subsequently swept Europe, uh, 1905, 1906, and arguably you could argue it started here in Australia. It was certainly manifested in Australia in 1902 in the coal mines just above where I, I live here in, in a place called Mount Kembla, right along the Illawarra coast. So there was an outpouring, it seems like a worldwide outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that uh, outpouring of the Spirit often occur- occurred in lower class people amongst lower class minorities people that would be normally looked down upon minors um, who were regarded you know as a lower class of people and yet god met them in their point of need and so the one thing we learn from the scriptures is that god hates he actually says he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble james 4 8 says draw near to god and he will draw near to you and there's that sense of god restoring god reviving Acts, this is the classic uh, verse in Acts 1.8, Jesus speaking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Paul articulates uh, it so beautifully in Ephesians, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And jumping back to the Old Testament, Habakkuk, uh, verse 3-2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear? O Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So here's Habakkuk, the prophet, one of the so-called minor prophets in the latter part of of the Old Testament, praying, revive your work in the midst of the years. Revive your work. So... The idea, the word revival is not found per se in the scripture, but it's found here in Isaiah 6.2. The thought of it's definitely found. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. <clears throat> and this particular scripture I particularly love, Isaiah 64 verse 1. And it says, Oh, that thou would rend the heavens and that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Okay. Um, in, and last but not least, Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So, yes, uh, we decided to write this book, and we are struggling with the meaning of the word revival. Um, Stuart Piggins talks about um, revival being a visitation, 
and um, a number of other people that I've talked to, Kurt, have said the same sort of thing. Mm. And that, um, but there seems to be oftentimes a linkage between the preaching of the gospel and great uh, preachers who had a great message, a, a, a revelation of Christ and him crucified, and were able to declare that. So you have the stories of, you know, Whitfield, you have the stories in, in, in um, George Whitfield from us, from England who went to America and preached the gospel all over, you know, all over America and all over, well, then known America, I should say, and England and Scotland and Ireland. And the same with Wesley. So it's a pretty big subject. Uh, we're on that on that exploration, I think, together. And I think the one thing that we uh, agree on is that we're not advocates of revivalism, which is... Um, there's nothing wrong with praying for revival and asking God for revival and working towards revival, but it's something that comes by the Spirit, through the Spirit, and it's not of works, least any man can boast. And yes, it's something that God does when we cry out to him, revive us again. So it's the work of God, and yet it's also the work of us. And we've been talking about how both of us are probably... Um, you know, have this situation where we both believe in, 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 you know, Arminism, but also Calvinism. We believe that God foreordains everything. God knows all things. And yet we also understand that God, man has a free will. And if you look at revival history, you see that it's usually been preceded um, in almost all cases by enormous amount of prayer. It's almost that God gives us the grace to pray. It's that God that allows us to pray and gives us the ability. But certainly... Um, the word revival is something we, both of us will know a lot more about and the meaning and definition of it. And hopefully we can give a clearer answer at the end of this book. Is that right, Kurt? Absolutely. That's part of the project. It's hopefully going to stretch and grow us as much as it does those who read it. So, yeah, awesome. That's a that's a fantastic starting point for a definition of revival. Thanks, Warwick. Uh, tell me about your favorite revival from history. I think I know the answer. So I'm asking mostly for the sake of listeners, but please tell us your favorite yeah revival story from history it's funny i've i've um just sort of jumping back if you'd said to me warwick you're going to write a book about revival even two years or three years ago or five years ago i would have said i don't think so and it's not because i don't love revival uh, i actually i just loved reading history about revivals i love the idea of revival of god's presence coming down of people coming to christ in droves uh, as Jonathan Edwards said, pe people came to Christ in great flocks. Um, so my, I've got this, it sounds funny, it's going to sound really weird, but I've got this love-hate relationship with revival because my sadness is that revival always ends. Um, and there's always a, a start and then and it happens and then it seems like there's always an end. <clears throat> and so my life has been a quest, if you like, for continual revival and also the, the idea of writing this book has brought great challenge to my to my heart and I've been wrestling with, you know, why I'm praying for revival, what do I believe about revival, what does the scripture say about revival, and even myself. And I've, I find that the great challenge for me is that I will engage myself uh, in personal revival. Um, you know, and this, this is important <clears throat> before I, I tell you that the, the sort of the story that I love the most. Um, I was, I'm, my background is, is Protestant, not Catholic, but Protestant, and strongly Protestant in so much that 
we felt that we were against the Catholics. And this was when I was a very young boy. My dad was, you know, brought up in that time. And back in the 50s and 60s, uh, there was this very much, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants. And even in Australia, there was this tension between the Catholics and Protestants. And I was on the Protestant side of the fence. And so I ended up, I was organising a prayer event here in Wollongong with, um, it was a large prayer event. And I'd heard that the Catholic Church at Warilla in a suburb of Wollongong was quite open to the things of the spirit and very open to unity and passionate for renewal and revival. So I went out to see the, the priest out there, Father Vince Whitman, and I was in the vestibule uh, waiting to see Father Vince Whitman waiting. And there was an old, beautiful old uh, priest there. He was uh, in the um, waiting room there chat, chatting with me and uh, his name was Father Jacques. So he's, he's a French accent. And uh, he um, had spent time on the mission field, not as a missionary, but as, as an intercessor for missions in Tanzania. I presume it was a cave somewhere or some grotto. And his job was to pray for the gospel to go out as their Catholic nuns and brothers and sisters and priests shared the good news in Tanzania. So he's a very godly man. And, uh, you know, I, I was trying to make conversation. I was a little bit nervous because it was my sort of first, you know, big interaction with my Catholic brothers and sisters. And I was trying to make conversations. So I said to Father Jacques, um, because I knew he was involved in, in the Catholic Church renewal, charismatic renewal in the Catholic Church. I said, brother, how's the renewal going? And he looked at me with beautiful, sparkling eyes and a great big smile. And his thick French accent said, brother, unless we renewed every day, there's no renewal. And I just sort of felt like a little crumb. I wanted to crawl into the floor floorboards like sort of a, a cockroach and just crawl away because, you know, he basically said, look, you know, unless we have a renew, the, the challenge is not renewal and how's the renewal going. It's the renewal inside you and me. So this challenge of writing this book is huge and and we're both engaged in this challenge. I think you are. You felt the same challenge, haven't you, Kurt? Tell me. I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I've. It's It's caused me to think. Am I just wanting to study and write about revival or do I actually really want it? And if I want it, what is that going to look like in my life and what is it going to cost me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're exactly the thoughts that have been going through my life, Kurt. I've just been, mm. I've actually been, you know, searching my heart because the scripture says, you know, the, the psalmist says, search my heart, Lord, see if there be any wicked ways in me, you know, cleanse me. And the, psalm, the psalmist, King David, to be precise, in Psalm 51 says, cleanse me O lord renew a right spirit within me and so we're writing a book about revival but the worst thing we could be is bull artists and you know hypocrites so we're actually both of us have been challenged and i, I feel that this process is going to go on kurt i don't know about you yeah absolutely i'm sure it will yeah and so um so you've asked me the question uh, this is a sort of a bit of a long-winded way to answer your question tell me about your favorite revival from history well, my favourite revival from history um, would still be the Welsh Revival. And I I question whether the Welsh Revival was as effective as it could have been or as it should have been, um, because it didn't um, it didn't emphasize strong preaching of the gospel. And yet the gospel was preached. Don't get me wrong. The gospel was preached and thousands came to Christ. I mean, tens of thousands uh, over they've recorded hundreds of thousands of, of people coming to Christ and churches growing 
by massive figures like that and and that revival in 1904 in Wales and again among the coal miners essentially among the lower class it touched London but just um, and it was very much through Wales and the and the the um, the mining the miners in Wales and the working class in Wales um, it was it was beautiful because the, what I like about it no one got the credit only God got the credit um, you know David Evans Robert Evans I should say um, the guy that was the argu arguable the leader although he, he he didn't want to own the title um, it was a move of the Holy Spirit and it was it was literally a an incredible um, what's the word for it? It was a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit, but it was people prayed for the sovereign move. So yes, mm -hmm. people prayed, but God answered and moved just mightily, uh, incredibly, so that the meetings went on uh, from you know every night of the week till three or four o'clock in the morning. So much so that Robert Evans actually um, didn't look after himself. And this is a challenge revival, by the way, Kurt. And all my studies, uh, a lot of Christians actually have nervous breakdowns because they, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And they go, they just keep going night after night, you know, to four o'clock in the morning with, in meetings, with intense meetings with the presence of God. They might mm. only getting two or three, four hours sleep a night. And you can't run your body on that sort of, that sort of situation. And eventually something cracks. So <clears throat> my big sort of, um, uh, all the revival stories I've read, that's a big thing to be concerned about. You have to look after your own health. You have to be wise. But I still love the Welsh revival because it was so it was full of worship. Um, you know, well, uh, Robert Evans was down in in England, and uh, a reporter said, "Gee, I, I think I'll come up to the re revival. I'd like to take part in it." I don't know whether he was serious or half serious, or he was really a true serious seeker or not. And uh, Robert Evans gave him a an answer. He said, "Well, can you sing? Can you <laughs> sing?" And I think. In many ways, revival occurs in the church to revive worship to God. You know, God is seeking worship, as it says in John, um, is it chapter four, chapter five, uh, um, in that Jesus conversation with the woman at the well. The Father seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. And yes, it's a criticism of revival about the amount of singing, um, and even our dear brother Stuart um, has a little bit of a dig at that uh, in his book uh, Flame. Uh, revival flame but the bottom line is that it revives worship to god it's very god-centric and i like the fact that uh, no man got the glory but it did fade after three or four years it seemed as if it just faded away to nothing the interesting thing though is that john uh, robert evans corresponded with um, uh, men of god and women of god in america and even india and people went, came from all over the world to go to wales and they went back and those flames, if you like, of revival, Kurt, uh, went right around the world. So whilst it, it sort of burned brightly for three or four years and seemed to finish, uh, the effects of it were massive in, across the nations and the globe. So I'd regard it as my favourite revival, but as far as probably, um, you know, um, well, I, I think I should just finish it there because I've got some other thoughts which maybe share some other, other questions. Great. Yeah, that's a, that's a wise idea because I know you and I could probably talk for a, a whole day on this at least. Um, but no, that's great. Fantastic. In fact, you surprised me, Warwick. I thought you were going to say the Moravians. Uh, so there I go. There we go. I've learned something about you. Let, let me just make a comment about that. Um, 
you know, so I loved the Welsh Revival as a young man in the 70s. And I was, uh, I was in my sort of, um, in the early 70s, I was in my teens and early 20s. Um, I just loved the Welsh Revival. But as I've gotten older, um, you know, I've become, you know, you become more conservative and you try to sort of figure out what's important and everything else. And, and my heart is actually, as I alluded to, uh, I'm I'm in, I'm actually on a search for personal revival. My my personal goal is personal renewal, personal revival every day. I was up the bush, the mountain this morning, up in the rainforest, wandering around, talking to God, walking through the mud, <laughs> dodging the leeches, and just saying, God, you know, I give my life to your fresh, Lord. Renew my spirit, renew my heart, renew my life that I might serve you. And that's my prayer every day. And every morning I take communion with my wife because I want to stay close to the cross. I want to stay close to Jesus. I want I want to walk in revival. Now, to me, actually, the most success the most successful period in Christian history was actually um, the revival amongst the Moravians. And so you mentioned that, and I'll quickly talk about that. And I did my first interview with um, uh, Jason Hubbard, who's done a lot of work. In, um, um, uh, de dealing with the Moravian revival, you could call it Moravian revival, but the, or, or what I would argue is that Moravian revival went for a hundred years through a prayer meeting that went for a hundred years, 24/7, round the clock. It's the longest prayer meeting of history, and it started in 1727. And yes, so my favourite revival, probably from a sustainable point of view, and an ability to see souls come to Christ and missions. They they went a, a right across the whole known world. The 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 Moravians in that first century, uh, in, or I should say in that in the 1700s, by 1730, 1740, they were in Arabia, they were in China, they were in South Africa, they were in Greenland, amongst the Eskimos, amongst goodness me, amongst you know if that's going up to the North Pole, they were amongst the Red Indians. They weren't just amongst the settlers in in in, in America. In, uh, they were actually amongst the Red Indians, preaching the gospel of the Red Indians. So it went down to the slave trade and and uh, got amongst the West Indies and saw tens of thousands of people come to Christ. They got down into South Africa and, again, had a tremendous influence on the South African church. So, yes, as far as a group of people that seem to be able to sustain revival, my favourite revival in that sense would be the Moravians, without a shadow of a doubt. But as, as a, a, a sort of a purist revival, as a, as a period of time and, a, and where it was just totally focused on God, that God got the glory, the Welsh revival. Mm, that's awesome. And one of the things about the Moravian, it's not really a revival, but I guess the history of the Moravians that I've been discovering in my research is that in many ways that was the first, um, I guess you could say the first modern revival, the, the biggest um, event in church history, probably since the Book of Acts that has since that essentially sparked the modern missions movement uh, and also sparked what, what I would say is sort of modern revival history. So the two great awakenings, um, obviously it came after the Reformation, but it, um, it has in many ways, um, all of the revivals that have happened since can be traced back to the um, hundred year prayer meeting of the Moravians. Yeah, and I, I would, uh, look, I actually would really, I would agree with you and I would argue that case very strongly. Um, you know, maybe Jonathan Edwards um, didn't know much about the Moravians <clears throat> um, in, um, you know, 1735 when he saw his first uh, outpouring of the Spirit in Northampton in New England mm. in America. But uh, 
it, it, would stri it strikes me that they had a hand, the Moravians, because it was a Moravian bishop, uh, John Helmet, who led John Wesley, John Wesley to Christ by his own admission. His heart was strangely warmed in 1739 in a Moravian prayer meeting in Aldescott, a suburb of London. And then John Wesley and Charles Wesley literally were on fire for God. And it was at that same time in history, within a few years, the Handel's Messiah was written by George, uh, George Frederick Handel. And, you know, that that is the most popular bit of music right now mm. that's sung around the world of all bits of music. And it was it came out of a revival <laughs> which arguably was connected to the Moravians, who themselves are great hymn writers and great uh, singers and worshippers. And, you know, you can see that the modern mission movement really started with with the Moravians. So, you know, I would agree with you that it certainly was probably the most significant uh, group of people in a in the last couple of thousand years. Now we they do go, they do go back. The the truth of the matter is the Moravians go back to uh, Wycliffe, they go back mm -hmm. to John Huss, they go back to Luther, and Luther yeah. was a German. The Moravians were German, so there's a connection there. And certainly what happened in Germany in uh, 15 I think 1517, if I got a, my my dates That's correct, right. uh, 1517 with the the um, thesis th Luther nailing his thesis to the to the church door, that literally changed history. And the printing press was just yeah. in, invented, so it actually catapulted his sermons across Europe. And unfortunately, war, war broke out, which is a terrible thing. But nonetheless, I, we both agree the Moravians are very special. What's your next mm. question? Excellent. Yes, <laughs> like I said, we could we could ramble for uh, many many hours on these topics. And I mean, just hearing you share, Warwick. I mean, I'm so passionate as well. I really think. Um, history, church history has so much to teach us and you and I and, and everyone listening I'm sure wants to change, we want to change history right, uh, but in order to change history we've got to know history and that's I think why um, you and I are so passionate about this project and I can't wait to get more into it. Next question which revival events in Australia's history do you feel that Aussies should know more about? You mentioned the Illawarra Mines, um, that's something I learned from you probably a couple of years ago we chatted about that um, so maybe that's what you'll say, but there, there could be other events in Australia's history that, you know, most people know little about, but you have a bit more insight into. So what, what do we need to know? What are some big gaps for Australians when it comes to history, well, the history know, of revival here? Um, 100%. Um, I mean, as a young guy, when I was sort of, say, 18, 19, you know, I, I was in a church, it would have been 1973, perhaps, or 72, and a minister got up and said, there's been no revival in Australia, right? And that is a patent. I believed him because I didn't have any other point of reference. There was actually no, there's not many books about revival. In fact, I don't, I'm not aware that any book was printed in 1972, 73, but there could have been, but I wasn't aware of it. Uh, and it certainly wasn't in popular circulation. So he said, there's been no revival in Australia. And I believed it, but it's absolutely, totally wrong. It was just a barefaced lie. The guy hadn't obviously done his research. And people like um, Robert Evans here, with 22 books about Australia, revival, uh, especially the 1800s, and uh, you know the revival and revivals that occurred in New Zealand, and right through the Pacific Islands, Fiji, Tonga, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, um, tremendous moves of the Spirit of God, and people coming to Christ, and people coming like radical transformations, like these people are headhunters and cannibals. 
and many of the missionaries were killed. Many of the missionaries were literally eaten, but their sacrifice brought life. Out of death comes life. And so these stories are amazing, and they're right, you know, in Australia and right across Australia, we've got these incredible stories. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, there's some incredible story. The 1800s, I was talking to Stuart Piggins, I asked him, you know, is there a peak peak period for, for revival in the 1800s? He said, Warwick, it was just like wave after wave. And you go back to the Parramatta revival uh, in um, 1839, uh, 1840, um, which was an incredible story of the move of God as people prayed and fasted. Three guys set themselves to pray and fast for revival and renewal in their church. And God heard their prayers in an incredible way. There was an outpouring of the spirit. But there was a revival. I live in Wollongong, New South Wales. Um, and there was a revival in Dapto, which is just six kilometers away from where I where I am right now, in, in 1830 in Marshall Mount. So Dapto, Marshall Mount. So Marshall Mount's right next to Dapto. And... Uh, this Methodist lay preacher came from England, migrated to Australia and moved out there and started sharing the gospel. And pretty soon he had like like 50 to 100 people uh, get involved in church. Unfortunately, the Anglican minister in Wollongong basically uh, <clears throat> got stuck into him <coughs> and moved him on, which is very sad. Um, and that often happens. Oftentimes you find the previous move of God persecutes the new move of God. And that seems to happen all the time in history. Um, but yeah, there's incredible stories. The the revival here in in uh, the mines up here is just an incredible story. So Ebenezer Vickery, the owner of the um, uh, many mines, he was based in Lithgow. In fact, he was one of the early part owners, I believe, of the steelworks. And he was a Methodist, a man of faith, and he actually financed uh, several um, wagons, independent wagons. And they had, you know, horses. I mean, everything was horse-drawn in those days. This is 1902. And they went, started down a narrow and went right through the Illawarra. And I look, I did my calculations of how many people came to Christ because they did a record of how many people came to Christ along the, mainly in the mines. And they went through, um, you know, the mines down in, um, on the Dapto sort of uh, mountains, mines, Mount Kembla, Mount Kira, Bulai, Winuna, right up to Helensburg. And the total of the population that came to Christ was 15% of the population came to Christ. Now, 15% of the population coming to Christ, Kurt, is massive. And, mm. and that revival occurred in 1902, a full two years before the Welsh revival. And mm. so, you know, I would argue that was an incredible time. And at the same time, there was a, there was a uh, Torian, uh, we're down in, in Melbourne, and there's a, there's a book that we're get, hopefully going to contact the the, the author, um, uh, Will Renshaw, and he's written this book about the move of the spirit in the early 1900s and how Melbourne was transformed uh, as people prayed and as people, uh, you know. So I haven't got a absolute favourite. I guess I'm still working on that, Kurt. But there's, there are some yeah. great stories in our uh, in our history about revival. There really, there really are. Yeah. I mean, I'm from South Australia and. You know, part of the reason I think you're drawn to the stories in Illawarra is because you live there and um, understandably so. And I'm from South Australia. Until we'd really embarked on this project, I'd not been aware of many revivals taking place there. But likewise, among the um, Welsh and other, you know, English miners, um, there's a mining district about three hours north of Adelaide. 
and uh, it's on the York Peninsula, Moonter, and there's a couple other towns nearby. And I was not aware of this until recently, but some major revivals broke out there, and it was quite sustained for a number of years. A lot of people came to faith. Some, you know, ridiculously large percentage of the population um, who weren't saved became saved, and then the, the vast majority, something like ninety percent of people, were attending church for I don't know, must have been probably decades. Um, so yeah, there's just so many pockets of revival that have happened in Australia's history. I'd also heard that suggestion that. God has not, there hasn't been revival in Australia's history, but it's not true. There's just so much. So obviously these are some of the stories we're hoping to bring out in our book. Next question. Warwick, we're living in very different times today to when past revivals that we've been speaking about happened. Um, I guess one, one way of putting this is that back when the Welsh revival happened or the Illawarra revival or the Moravian revival, um, you know, any revival in history, there was a much stronger Christian foundation. Um, you know, the majority of people, if they weren't believers, they at least believed that God existed. They had some kind of Christian framework in terms of how they viewed the world. But now, um, you know, something like probably over half of the population of Australia, um, according to the last census at least, are not church going and um, don't necessarily have much of a connection to church anymore. Um, probably don't really have a Christian worldview. Um, secularism is much stronger and there's a lot of other influences coming in now, um, sort of neo-Marxism and wokeism, all that sort of stuff. So there's a different way that people are viewing the world and interacting with other people and, um, and the sense of transcendent. So is it possible for revival to still happen in this context? Because in some ways this is unprecedented for the West. Um, can we can we still see revival even though our our historical sort of reference point now is so different? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a very good question, Kurt. Um, <clears throat> look, I, you know, at times I struggle to pray for revival for Australia because I look at our nation, um, we're so godless, um, we're so turned away from God, uh, we've introduced homosexual marriage, we've We've basically legalised adultery. That's that's what happened with the um, the changes to the um, Family Law Act in in 76 uh, under under uh, Murphy, the uh, solicitor, the uh, Attorney General, and he brought in um, no fault divorce. And no fault divorce sounds very sweet typically, but the reality was it said if you commit adultery, that's not that's not a, a sin. That's not something wrong. You can commit adultery and it doesn't you, it's not something that will be marked against you <clears throat> and of course it was to to keep remove the christian ethos out of the nation his goal um lionel murphy's goal he was quite open about it was to remove all traces of judea christian values out of our nation he did a darn good job of it and unfortunately that continued with the push for homosexual marriage and I'm very concerned about the legalization of the next push will be the legalization of, uh, um, you know, pedophilia, which is a horrific thought. But that's where we're going. Our trajectory is going towards that as a nation because we've abandoned God. We've actually abandoned truth because truth is connected to the scriptures and truth is connected to Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you've actually really elucidated that very, very well in this book that you've written, Kurt, I might add. Um, for those who haven't got it, please grab a copy. Just Google Cross and Culture, and you can get it direct from the author, or you can get it from Kurong or Amazon. So we've abandoned Christ, and in doing so, we're abandoning truth, and our nation is in a shocking state. Well, 
The good news is Jesus is bigger than our sin. Jesus is bigger than our rebellion. Jesus is bigger than our wickedness. And Jesus Christ is our only hope. So I agree with you, your summation, their summation, perilous times. I keep thinking of that scripture, perilous times shall come. We're living in perilous times. We've got uh, a war in the Ukraine, which could escalate into a third world war at the drop of a drop of a hat. We've got China who wants to take in, take over Taiwan. We've got uh, nations um, beating the, the drums of war. And But God's grace is bigger than our stupidity. God's grace is bigger than our war. God's grace is bigger than our sin. And so my hope is not so much in myself, definitely not. An organization, definitely not. And even the church, I pray for the church to be revived. But ultimately, it's Jesus Christ who is the hope of the world. Now, Kurt, I have been thinking a lot about this. As you know, we've been thinking a lot about this and in even the lead up to writing this book. And we'll obviously continue to think about it as we write the book. But I, I, I'm thinking about, you know, what we arguably were the worst time of history. I believe the worst time of history was the day that Jesus, uh, the crowd said, crucify him. And Pilate said, is he your king? And they actually renounced their authority um, of, of Christ and God in a sense. They said, he's not our Messiah. He's not our king. We have no king but Caesar. In a way, they were betraying their own Jewish patriotic roots uh, for the sake of destroying and rejecting the Son of God. So Jesus the Christ came. Jesus the perfect Son of God came. What did he do? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He helped people. Um, he helped people see. Blind people could see. Deaf people could hear. And what do we do to Jesus? Collectively, the, the uh, social uh, collective at the time, combining with the uh, horrible the, the oppressive uh, Roman government and the oppressive, horrible um, religious authorities, the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, worked together and with the people, they crucified Jesus Christ. Now, that was the worst event in human history in my mind, Kurt, number one. Number two, within uh, 50 days of that, there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, came back from the dead and said, don't worry, everything's going to be right, but wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, right now, I believe we are waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need an Acts 2 moment right now in our culture because our culture is sick to the point of death. It seems irrecoverable. Its trajectory is totally, without God, we're finished, Kurt. I hate to say that to you, but I, I, just, I can, cannot see how we can recover ourselves. It will be the grace of God. And it will be the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus and it came to the in the book of Acts when those same people in Jerusalem had killed Jesus. And Peter got up and spoke about it and said, you killed Jesus. He said that in the in the in his uh, famous sermon in the book of Acts, you killed the Christ. But the Christ has come back. He rose from the dead and he loves you. And Jesus cried out on the cross, um, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And I think that's our hope. My hope for revival for our nation is not in myself. It's not in the church. It's not on my ability. It's in, in the cross of Christ. It's in the fact that Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yeah. He's a God of comebacks, hey? Awesome. So comeback. last question. 
Last question. I'm going to combine the last two. Um, what would revival look like today in Australia and what's it going to take? Well, I think it's going to take determined people who will pray, number one. Determined people who will uh, come before God and ask for cleansing and personal renewal. And this is the challenge that you and I face writing this book. We, we feel very challenged. So, you know, we, we're on a journey back to God as a nation. We're on a journey back to the throne room of grace as a nation, I believe. And God is looking for, it says in, this, in, in Ezekiel, I looked for a man who would stand in the gap, but I found no one. Uh, I think that's Ezekiel 34, if I remember, remember rightly. Um, God is looking for men and women who will stand in the gap on behalf of the land. And so right now, Kurt, I believe our job is to stand in the gap and to cry out to God. And we must go back to that scripture in 2 Chronicles 7.14, which I believe is foundational for a move of the Spirit, for uh, a revival, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where it says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So God wants to heal our land. That's, that's his promise. That's our hope. Let Christ be glorified in a mighty move of the Spirit and let there be a great Southland revival, not for our sake, but for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the release of the gospel in our nation and the release of the gospel in the South Pacific in Jesus' name. Amen. That's awesome. Fantastic last answer. Well, thank you so much, Warwick. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you to everyone who's been listening. Um, stay tuned for the next episode. Uh, we're going to be producing many more of these on our journey towards writing Great Southland Revival. And the people that we're going to be speaking to in future episodes are brilliant minds, godly men and women, people who know the history of revival and have a, a lot of amazing things to share. So please um, stay tuned for more. Thanks again. God bless you, Kurt. Thanks so much.